Welcome to the Outpost Bible Church podcast. My name is Pastor Alex Rodriguez. The Outpost Bible Church seeks to see men and women delivered by Christ, discipled in Christ, and deployed for Christ and His kingdom. Our values are to be Christ-centered, gospel-driven, scripturally grounded, prayerfully dependent, and mission-focused. Here, you will be able to find all of our Sunday morning and Sunday evening sermons. God bless. Father God, we come before you this afternoon in the powerful name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, each of us comes here this afternoon with a million different things on our mind, different responsibilities, concerns, fears, worries, distractions. Some of us have had awesome weeks and they've been so good that we've actually forgotten to give you the credit for it. And some of us had such hard weeks that we haven't come to you because we've been so overwhelmed by our circumstances. And then there's everything in between. Lord, we ask here and now that as we open your word, your spirit would take our hearts and incline them to you, that you would remove the distractions, the noise, anything that will take our focus off you, that you would just move them aside so that we can be focused, heart, mind, body, and soul on you, God. That you would open our eyes to see your beauty and glory in your word. That as we come together, Lord, as a family in Christ, you would unite each one of our hearts to fear and treasure your name and unite our hearts toward one another. And Lord, may we each walk out of here today satisfied, overwhelmingly satisfied with your love for us. May you lead us in truth during this time, Lord, so that we can go out into a world full of lies and proclaim Christ. May the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. And may you take hold of each one of our hearts and shape it to be more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We are continuing with our series on true biblical friendship. And we've seen, we looked at our values and how that kind of helped frame things. And then we looked at the fact that we were created for friendship. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to see that friendship is founded on the gospel. True biblical friendship is founded on the gospel. Now, some of you know that I had the privilege of serving in the United States Army. And I remember getting on the bus in Pensacola, Florida and heading out not knowing what to expect on my way to basic training. I remember pulling in to base late at night, all those big brown hats waiting to embrace me in love and compassion. <laughs> remember them getting onto the bus and greeting us. We came out and we towed the line, put your foot, feet on those yellow footprints. It was an experience. Now, what was amazing as I reflect back on that time is that when everybody got off the bus, you looked left and you looked right and you realized all of us come from radically different walks of life. 
We all have radically different experiences. We all joined and listed for different reasons. And yet here we all are, feet on the line, recognizing that for the next three to six months, we're all gonna be together every minute of every day. Under normal circumstances, these group of people would never become friends and hang out. Just wouldn't happen. One of my friends that I still talk to from back, I went to the army a city boy. Backwards had big fake diamond stud earrings city boy, baggy jeans. One of my closest friends that came out of that that I still talk to, his name's Edward Justice. Picture Duck Dynasty and that's Ed. There's no reason we would ever get together and be friends, but here we were, we met in the army. You know, an amazing thing happens at the end of basic training, many people form lifelong friendships there. Despite all those radical differences. The question is why? Why does that happen so often in basic training, boot camp, whatever you call it? Why does the military do that? Why do guys serve for three years, but they can see their battle buddies 15 years later at some random event and all the affection and affinity is there? It's because they were put in a context, in a pressure cooker, shut up from the world, and they were forced to come together and be with one another around the training and around the mission. They were forced to be united around something that was bigger than themselves and bigger than their personal interests. So the foundation of their relationship was that. It wasn't, oh, you like football, I like football. It was, we both wear the same uniform, we fight for the same cause, we're in the same training, and we're gonna entrust our lives to one another potentially if that day were to come when you go to war. It unites you in a very unique way. We can talk more at another time about how that was such a difficult transition for me into this into the church because I expected that in the church and I didn't find it. But the reality is we should find it in the church because the church in a similar way and actually in a far greater way can and should unite men, women, and children from all walks of life together to be one because they share a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They, if, if our life is in Christ, Colossians 3, 4, and we are part of his body and he lives in us by his spirit, then we all are united together because we all are united to him. And we are all united on the one mission he gave his church to make disciples. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are united by one common faith in the one true God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's because of the reality of this union that followers of Jesus should have the truest and deepest friendships founded on something bigger than themselves 
and bigger than their shared in common interests. So what we're going to see is that the gospel provides the necessary foundation needed to have true biblical friendships. The gospel provides the necessary foundation needed to have true biblical friendships. That is the ground by which all of us have grown out of. We sprouted into new life out of the soil of the gospel. We share that. And therefore, that should be the foundation of our friendships. Now, we will have things and interests in common. We'll find that out. But I have more in common with one guy in this church than I have with another guy. It doesn't mean that I should be a better friend to the one I have stuff in common with. No, I should love equally and sacrifice equally for both because of our shared foundation, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we go into our points, I do want to say this. None of these messages are exhaustive. None of these messages can say all that there is to be said about biblical friendship. But prayerfully, what the, the, expect, the hope is, is that these messages will provide you at least a bearing in which you can begin uh, charting a course to cultivate these things. And this is true for anything in the Christian faith. No one sermon, no one book, no one Bible study will be exhaustive of anything but it can provide us a framework by which to faithfully pursue these things. And so today, as we look at the, found, uh, the gospel being the foundation of friendship, I'm hoping it'll do just that, begin to provide the framework for it. So let's jump into our, our points now this afternoon. Point number one is the fracturing of friendship. The fracturing of friendship. We saw in previous messages how we were created for friendship. In Genesis 1 and 2. But as soon as we get to Genesis 3, we see something go terribly wrong. Verses 1 through 13 in Genesis 3 are so important for the Christian to know for a variety of reasons. You want to know why the world is the way it is currently? Learn these verses. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Tragic passage, but so important. Prior to the fall, God had told Adam what would happen if he violated this command and ate from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil. He said, you will die. We see that in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Adam had all that he wanted. He had perfect fellowship with God. He had perfect fellowship with his wife. And yet they ate of the tree. And when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they cut themselves off from the author and sustainer of life. In that moment, they spiritually died instantly, and they began to die physically. But they also cut themselves off from friendship with God. They were originally created to be in perfect fellowship and perfect friendship with God forever. And now, what do we see in verses 1 through 13? They hear him coming and they hide. They hide from God. The one who they were made for, they now flee from. And because of this, we see this demonstrated, illustrated, that they no longer have this friendship with God because God kicks them out of the garden. They're evicted. So we see that friendship is fractured vertically. We also see the friendship the ability for friendship is fractured internally within Adam himself. The innocence of man is now gone. His eyes are opened to sin. Imagine what that must have felt like. Imagine all that you've ever known is perfect purity and goodness, and you blink, and it's all different. Think about that. In the, literally, in the blink of an eye, The fear, the dread, the pit in his stomach, I imagine, that must have been felt. What did we do? What did I do? He now knows good and evil, but unlike God who knows it because of his perfect knowledge, Adam knows good and evil by experience. He's become a sinner. And Adam represented us in the garden, represents all humanity. Adam became a sinner, and therefore all humanity now moving forward has a sin nature. Meaning, we come into this world sinners. We desire that which is wrong and evil. If that's debatable, some people have an issue with that. I would say, one, you probably haven't had children. Children show us the depravity at the youngest of ages. I remember one preacher saying, if you don't believe in sin, take a pacifier from a young child and look at the anger. That child would kill you if he could. 
You don't have to teach anyone to lie, to steal, to deceive. You don't have to teach anybody how to just explode in anger because it is in our very fabric. Internally, we have been, we broke. We're broken internally because of our sin. Going back to what Adam did. And because of that, man no longer has a desire to seek God and be in relationship with him. They hide from him. Man now walks the earth dealing with feelings of shame, of guilt, of fear, of insecurity. Before the fall, there was none of this. Eating the fruit dealt himself, in eating the fruit, Adam dealt himself a fatal blow. But he's also fractured horizontally. So I'm broken with my God. I'm broken within myself. And now I'm broken in the relationships I have in this world. Those feelings of shame, guilt, fear, insecurity, it radically affects how Adam and Eve relate to one another. Genesis 3, 7 tells us, their eyes were open, they knew they were naked, they sewed fig leaves, and they covered themselves. They're hiding themselves from one another. The fact that they were naked and unashamed was a picture of trust, of vulnerability, a shame-free world. But now the seed of distrust has been planted into the heart of man. And it makes sense because think about it. Adam and Eve now look at each other. And one can imagine the thought process of it. Wait a minute. If you if you broke trust with God and I broke trust with God, what's to say we won't break trust with one another? Well, they cover themselves. And to this day, even in our sexually perverse culture, there is still this understanding that there is something not natural about nakedness. It goes back to this very moment. You know, we tend to think that the sin was when they bit into the fruit, but that's not true. The birth of sin was when Adam and Eve resolved to eat the fruit. And the eating of the fruit was simply the expression of the sinful choice that was already made. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, that sin is an issue first and foremost of the heart. Matthew 15, verses, starting at verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. This, these are what defile a person. They made a choice before they even grabbed that fruit. They knew what they were going to do. They had resolved. And at that moment, Adam, who is the federal representative, once he determines in his heart to eat the fruit, he ceases to care for Eve as he was called to. Steps back, he lets her reach the fruit, he lets her bite, and then he takes a bite as well. He ceases to seek the good of the other, which is the very heart of friendship, to seek the well-being of another, to protect them, to care for them. 
But because Adam had resolved in his heart to disobey God, he stopped caring about what would happen to his friend, who is his wife, there in the garden. And so we see friendship fractured in Genesis chapter 3. And it's what's characterizing the world today. And what Genesis 3 makes very clear is that not only do sinners need to be redeemed, but friendship itself needs redemption. So that brings us to our second point. The redeeming of friendship. Now, if friendship is to be founded on the gospel, then there are a couple things we need to know about this gospel. Now, we've done messages throughout the time of our church has been uh, in existence these last two years on what is the gospel. And so time will not allow us to, to do an unpacking of all of it. We did a whole series on what is the gospel. But briefly, I will say this. The word gospel means good news. What is this good news? Perhaps one of the clearest passages will be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Let me read them for you. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Now I would remind you, brothers, these are believers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and in which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you. Interestingly, he seems to be implying they're founded on the gospel. Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is a message of what Jesus has done. In our church, we often use this definition for the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God, by his grace and for his glory, saves sinners through the perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's the message that drives the Christian life. It is the foundation of true biblical friendship. The gospel tells us that what was ruined by sin has been redeemed through the cross. Now, this gospel has many effects. You know, we typically think of the gospel as a salvation message, and it is. But there's a whole lot more to the gospel than merely your salvation and getting into heaven. So I want to go through a couple truths. And as I'm going through these, you might be thinking, well, how does this connect to friendship? Hang in there. Because the more you know what the gospel has done for you, both vertically, the more you can live it out horizontally with one another. First and foremost, as we've seen, 
Because of the gospel, through the gospel, you're forgiven of your sin, Ephesians 1.7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Through the gospel, we have been declared justified before God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord, Jesus Christ. We've been set free through the gospel from sin and death. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Through the gospel, you have been adopted into God's very family. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Through the gospel, you have become an entirely new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're accepted by God through the gospel. Romans chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that they might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through the gospel, you have the power to fight and overcome sin. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. But I say to you, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And lastly, through the gospel, you have received every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why do I go through all of that? Because it's crucial for us to know that man's greatest problem, which is sin, has been dealt with completely through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sin has been put away. You are now righteous before the sight of God. You will not receive the punishment of sin and death. You are a family member of the Godhead. You have been made a completely new creature. Your past, your sins, everything you've done no longer defines you. 
God looks at you and you are accepted and loved. He gives you his very Holy Spirit. He says you have the power to fight sin and overcome it. I haven't withheld any blessing from you. Now go live that out in the context of the local church with your friends in Christ. Everything that I said there that's an effect of the gospel is to be lived out in the covenant of biblical friendship. And it's because all those things are true that we are actually able to be friends in a way that pleases the Lord. Now, I'm going to say something here that may sound a bit off. Some of you may cringe depending on where you're at. But if the Bible never makes you cringe, then you're not reading it right. There's many things, truths I've come across, and I'm like, oh, really? And I got to sit on it for a moment and chew. Here's the statement. Friendship is the goal of the gospel. Friendship is the goal of the gospel. Let's unpack that because I see some looks. Is it all about the glory of God? Amen. Yes. But how does the gospel glorify God? Yes, it shows him to be just and the justifier. But let's go back, right? What was the problem that happened in Genesis 3? Well, Genesis 1 and 2, what was man created for? Friendship with God. Genesis 3, what happens? We're no longer friends with God. God sends his son to what? To deal with everything that has kept us away from him in friendship. And so the goal, what the gospel does, is it brings us back into this glorious friendship with our creator and redeemer. God glorifies himself by making his foes his friends once more. The gospel is not only about forgiveness. The gospel is about clearing every obstacle so that we can be in right relationship, friendship with God and share in the perfect friendship he's had with himself from all eternity within the Trinity. So let's look at some pictures to, to, uh, within the scriptures, some passages within the scriptures to make that clear. John chapter 17, verse 3. This is one of those verses you highlight, you underline, you box out, you asterisk. This is an important verse. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It doesn't say that they know about you but that they know you. No, in scripture is a very intimate, personal word. It speaks of the closeness of a relationship. Apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we only know God as an enemy, but through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know God personally, intimately as a friend, not as a judge. And to know God, as a friend, Jesus says, is eternal life.
but there's more. Let's go back two chapters to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verses 14 and 15 say, this is Jesus speaking, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I've made known to you. Is Jesus Lord over them? Yeah. Is Jesus King over them? Absolutely. Is he the Alpha and the Omega? Is he the spotless Lamb? Yes. But he's also a friend to those 12 men and to us by faith. That might make some of us uncomfortable. Some of us have a picture of Jesus, and I've been guilty of this. That's the King. That's the General. It's my Savior, my Lord. And so approaching him as a friend is a little uncomfortable. Others have no problem coming to Jesus as a friend, but they struggle with the authority of Christ. But it's not either or, it's both. Jesus says here, you're my friends if you do what I command you, because their obedience shows their love for him. And for all of us in here who have come to Christ by faith, I want you to hear it. Jesus truly looks upon you and calls you his friend. Let me go back two more chapters to John 13, 34 and 35. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We're going to come back to this verse from different points in the rest of this message, but here, what does Jesus say? I love you. And I want you to love others the way I love you. To personalize it, Jesus says, Alex, I love you, and I love Tony. Now, I want you to love Tony the way I love Tony. And for every other person in this room. Because that's what it looks like to be a friend. We could really just end the series now and say, what is biblical friendship? Loving your fellow brother and sister in Christ the way Jesus loves them. I want you to take that in. You are that perfectly loved by the Lord. And now you have the privilege to love others likewise. And this is what makes friendship possible. This is what makes the gospel possible. Gospel, friendship found in the gospel possible. Because you can't love the way Jesus loves unless you have been redeemed by him through faith. The gospel gives you the very love of God to love others in this manner. Because we have been restored vertically, we can pursue restored relationships horizontally with one another. The gospel means we no longer need to pursue true friendships with a guarded heart. Rather, we can pursue true friendships with a heart of faith. 
And I know there's questions. Wait a minute. You tell me just unzip here my open heart and give my heart to everybody. There's wisdom that's needed within there. I'm not diminishing that. And in the message on cultivating biblical friendship, we'll cover that. But as a general principle, what I'm saying is you don't go into a biblical true friendship with your emergency lights flashing, suspecting the worst. You go into it saying that's a blood-bought believer of Christ. I'm a blood-bought believer of Christ. I'm going to approach them with faith and an open heart. The world's completely guarded. The world is a world of betrayal, deceit, deception. Somebody will say they're your friend who's not a believer in Christ, and they'll backstab you and gossip about you in two minutes. In your moments of need, they leave you hanging. When you hit the floor and shatter into a thousand pieces, they're nowhere to be found. You can be angry at that and hurt by that, but here's the reality. They don't have the capacity to love the way friendships are supposed to be because they don't have Christ, who is the source of love. But for those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it ought to be completely different because our friendship should be founded on the gospel. Now, another aspect to this verse in John 13, verses 34 and 35. And I really want to hammer this in. Jesus is saying, I want you to love one another with a supernatural love that is only possible through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if you're a professing follower of Christ, if you're not pursuing the cultivation of your friendships in the Lord by faith and dependence upon the Holy Spirit who lives in you, then you're not loving them with the love of Christ. You're trying to love them on your own strength, which is a friendship not being founded on the gospel at that moment. Listen to Romans chapter 5, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God poured his very love into our hearts because we are an object of his love, but because that love has been poured into our hearts, we cannot pour that love out toward others. Or at least we ought to. Therefore, we can say the ability to love friends is a gift of the gospel. To our final point, point number three. The foundation of friendship. I'm actually gonna be a little, I've been laying the, the foundation of this point of the foundation of friendship. But the practical how-tos, I'm gonna be a little short here. Uh, in many ways, just think of this third point as a trailer for the message on the cultivation. Um, which, when we get there, will be a longer message. You just give me forewarning. There's a lot there. But let me say this. The ability to have true biblical friendships 
flows from what Christ has done for you, not anything that you've done. Let me repeat that. The ability to have true biblical friendships flows from what Christ has done for you, not anything that you have done. You will be the truest friend when you have an eye on Christ. You will be the worst of friends when your vision is off Christ. Not only friends, you'll be the best spouse, the best parent, best grandparent, best son, best daughter, best brother, best sister. You will be able to do that well as long as you keep your eye on what Jesus has done and is doing for you. When you take your gaze off of Christ, inevitably your gaze goes upon yourself and you become the worst version of yourself because that is the flesh. Friendships that are founded on the gospel have the Lord Jesus Christ at its very center. Now, we live in a world where everyone is concerned with how they will be viewed by others. It is amazing to me. I mean, even this whole on social media, I got members in my family, grown folk, who take a selfie and they have to filter up their face because they want to make sure they are viewed well and they're thought well. And look, she's aging so beautifully. Just consumed with how you're perceived by people for all the wrong reasons. Here's the beauty of the gospel. You no longer need to wear any masks. You don't have to worry about impressing people. You don't no longer have to try to keep up the image. You no longer have to try to win friends. Because friendships founded on the gospel means two people can look at one another and say, I'm a sinner in need of grace. And you're a sinner in need of grace. I'm imperfect in every way. So am I. Friendships founded on the gospel no longer become a righteousness contest. The gospel levels the playing field. Each of us looking at one another are confessing the same things. That we've been saved by the gospel of grace. That we are being sanctified by the gospel of grace. And that we are going to imperfectly seek to extend that grace to one another. All of us should aim to be saying what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. There's nothing anybody can say about you that's too bad. You're far worse than they realize. So am I. Somebody says, you're a liar. You have no idea. It's reality. You're a hypocrite. Yep. Praise God. That's why I need Jesus. That's why I need the gospel. That's why I need a saving grace. That's why every single day I have to go to the cross, confess, repent. The gospel, therefore, frees us to approach friendship with honest, transparent, non-defensive hearts. Rather than being guarded. You don't need to hide who you are, nor hide what you're struggling with when a friendship is truly founded on the gospel. Friendships that are truly founded on the gospel should be 
Two people saying, oh, you're a sinner? Me too. Let's both run after Christ together. Again, I go back to John 13. Such an important topic, uh, passage as we think about what it means to be a friend. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're going to jump to John 15, 12, and 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Do you realize our, the quality of our friendships within the church, the quality of the friendships of professing believers of the Lord Jesus Christ are preaching a sermon to a watching world? When people see our friendships, they should see the love that is found and made available through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the bare minimum, they should say, you know what? I think everything you believe is nonsense, but the love is real. I can't explain that. By this, all the world will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Jesus said, the world will sit as the jury, and they will see the love between all of you, and they will say, whether it is genuine or not, It doesn't say you're going to take a theology test. Because here's the reality. Doctrine matters because true doctrine rightly understood will produce a love for God that therefore produces a love for one another. So as I say often, you could be a smart devil. The evidence that your theology is right is how you love God and how you love one another within friendships. I pray that that would be true of my life. The gospel matters for every part of our lives. When our friendships are founded on the gospel, we are protected from making friendships a functional savior. The world makes a God out of friendships. If I don't have friends, I'll die. The gospel tells us what a friend we have in Jesus. And through that, look at the inheritance I have, friendships with the people who follow him likewise. The world makes a God out of friendships. The church has friends all pointing back to God. We collectively say, let's look to Christ together. So how do you know? How do you know if the friendships you currently have, the friendships you're gonna be forming, have the gospel as the foundation. Let me offer some questions, a diagnostic. You should be asking this in your friendships, both of them and of yourself. Do the two of you fear the Lord? Do the two of you love the Lord? Do the two of you depend on the Lord? 
Do the two of you prioritize your relationship with the Lord and the local church? Do you see the fruit of the spirit in their life and in yours? Do you spur one another on to love and good works? Do the conversations you have center around the things of the Lord more often than not? Do you pray for one another and with one another? Are the two of you marked by grace? Just some questions to consider. Are those things true of your friendships with professing believers? Or are the friendships you have with professing believers more worldly than heavenly? More founded on the world and founded on the gospel? Because true biblical friendships that are founded in the gospel will always be marked by these kinds of things. There will be two friends who genuinely come into friendship, genuinely love the Lord, genuinely are seeking to found it on the gospel, will be spurring each other on to fear the Lord more, to love the Lord more, to depend on the Lord more, to prioritize your walk with Jesus more, to prioritize the local church, to see the growing of the spirit, the fruit of the spirit in your life. Your conversations will more and more come back to the things of the Lord. I'm not saying that's all you talk about, but you always seem to find your way back there. You pray for one another. You pray with one another. You're gracious toward each other. And I would even say this last one. There's a certain aura of hospitality in your friendships. It's not closed off. You want people to partake because it has, a, it has a Trinitarian power to it. God in his perfect relationship of friendship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brought us in and those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in us by faith in God the Son because of the election of God the Father are seeking to bring others into a, this gospel-founded friendship. Now I do imagine there's some out there this afternoon who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, as a result, you have no friendship with God. You're actually sitting here this afternoon, an enemy of God. And you know it because your life is marked from hiding from God. You don't know the God of love. And if you looked at your own friendships, you would say, you know what? My friendships show that I don't know God, that I'm not a friend of, I'm not friends with God. And it's by my choosing. It's not that I went to God and he's turned me away. It's that I hide from him. To you I say, turn to Jesus. Right here, right now, turn to Jesus. You were created to have friendship with God. He sent his son, his one and only son, his beloved son, to bring you back into relationship with him. All you need to do here and now is confess that you are a sinner who's been living in perpetual rebellion to God, that there's nothing you could ever do on your own to fix your relationship with God, and that your only hope is to trust entirely in who Jesus is and what he's done through his perfect life, substitutionary death, and resurrection from the dead. And when you trust in him that way, you can have assurance that you will be forgiven this very moment and you will become a friend of God, perfectly loved by him, 
And he offers to you an entire family that will love you imperfectly, but truly, and they will call you friend. So I plead with you to turn this day from your sin and turn to Christ. And I think of the words from that old hymn that says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in the name of Christ, by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit. And we say thank you, Lord, that when, we, when, when each of us wanted nothing to do with you, you and your unstoppable, extravagant, irresistible grace sought us out and saved us from ourselves. You opened our eyes to see the wretchedness of our sin. You opened our eyes to see your holiness. You opened our eyes to see your love, your grace, and your mercy. And you gave us the gift of faith by which we could turn from sin and turn to you, Lord Jesus. And in so doing, we not only became followers of Christ, we become friends of Christ. And as we'll see in coming weeks, because we are your friends, you delight over us. Father, help us prize that rightly and help us act accordingly and strengthen us to see all that is available to us through your gospel, Lord Jesus, that we would pursue friendships that are founded on the power and truth of the gospel and what you have done and are doing for us. May more and more and more our friendships reflect the truths of the gospel. May we have open arms and open hearts to invite more people. Will you protect us, Lord, from guarding our hearts and being closed off and not operating by faith as we approach one another? And may all of us, Lord, always remember what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. Thank you for loving us and thank you for giving us the opportunity and the ability to love you rightly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand and uh, let's sing the uh, very hymn that Pastor Alex just quoted. What a friend we have in Jesus, number 164. Very apropos hymn given, given the message we just heard. 164, what a friend we have in Jesus. Thank you.
Each week we have the privilege of coming to the Lord's table. It's an amazing thing when we think about coming to a table. We often come to tables as families and as friends, and it's the time of, of love and laughter. It's called communion for a reason, because we truly are fellowshipping with God together. Now we recognize that as we come to this table, we come to it because of what Christ has done for us by the shedding of his blood for the remission of sins. We recognize that he did that so that we could have the very thing we've been talking about and seeing in God's word. Christ spilled his blood so that we can be forgiven, so that we can come to God as friends, that we can receive that grace, that love, that fellowship. We profess this when we take the bread and the cup. We acknowledge that we are sinners without hope except for the sovereign, saving mercy of God through Christ. That Christ alone is the one who can bring us back into a restored relationship. And each week, as the bread, which is a picture of his body broken, and the cup, which is a picture of his blood spilt for us, it's God reminding us that he, he was motivated out of this, out of love for us. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God truly loves you through Christ. And there is a coming day where the, the church will be gathered at a real table and we will really see Jesus and he will partake of this meal once again and he will have fellowship with us, his friends and his bride. But here and now, until that day comes, we walk by faith and the Spirit of God takes the elements and the Holy Spirit nourishes our faith, strengthens our faith and deepens our love for Christ. And this special meal is given for those who are followers of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, then we would ask that you would allow the elements to pass by for it wouldn't be appropriate. But again, my hope and prayer is if you came in here not a follower of Christ, you're not leaving that way. For here and now, he offers forgiveness and friendship to you through faith. Before the elements are distributed, let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in the name of Christ, knowing that in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. But when Adam rebelled, we rebelled with him. And we fell into sin and we had become subject to evil and death. But in your extravagant mercy, you sent your son your one and only eternal son to take upon flesh being fully man and fully God to live a perfect life to die a death he didn't deserve on the cross but a death in which he was the substitute of all who believe and that as he hung there on the cross it wasn't even the physical torments that were the worst but that you poured your righteous wrath upon him so that he could pay the penalty for all who would believe. And that you, Lord Jesus, did this voluntarily for the joy that was set before you. And as we trust in that, you have now forgiven, justified, and reconciled us to yourself. May that message never become dull to us, but may it continue to enlarge in our heart's capacity to love you and adore you and commune with you, God. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you take these means of grace and you use them for sanctifying purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's amazing. The world sees a cracker, a piece of bread broken. But to those who've had their eyes open to the reality and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, we see a picture of hope and love. So let's take this now. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was being betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Take and drink. We pray with me once more. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this most precious sacrament by which our faith is nourished and our hearts are enlarged to be able to love you more. Oh, how we long for the day that we will see you face to face, Jesus. But, but until that day, may each week we come to the table with joyful expectation we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To please stand for the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here. Be. Oh,
to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace. If anyone uh, needs prayer, we'll, some of us will be up front, so uh, we welcome and we count it a privilege to pray for you if anyone has a need. I think, 
highly good.
prayer. Yeah. Hey, how are you doing?
Thank you. 
Just gonna say, so what's the newest in the life of Mark?